If you're average on everything, then it's much easier to be liked, I think, by everyone. I think it's a real concern that society is starting to be set up in a way in multiple places across the globe where people choose not to have children. I think if you can, um, you should just do so because it's a tremendous joy and it's just great. And I think it's, it's, it's important to ensure that we don't become uh, a population of just really old people. Hello everyone, my name is Farhan. And I am Anna. You are listening to The Lessons We Learned, where we dive into the lessons that Asia's best and brightest business leaders have learned in their lives. In this episode, we have Magnus in the hot seat. Norwegian Navy SEAL, Harvard graduate, classmates with Mark Zuckerberg, Zolora co-founder, and now Startup Whisperer at Antler. Magnus has come a long way. Thanks for coming on to The Lessons We Learned, Magnus. Let's dive into it. Magnus, yeah. tell us about your childhood. Yes, so um, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Norway, in farm country. So it was about 10 kilometers to the closest store. It was about 100 people in the community. Um, and uh, yeah, we had a little farm there, with, but we didn't actually have any farm animals. We had 36 huskies, so we were doing professional dog sledging. So my father was the head of the Polar so- Dog Association in, in Norway. Wow. So, cool. so we uh, used to have a lot of huskies, lots of land, and uh, yeah, we'd go up in, in the mountains, into the forests all the time. This year, I think every waking moment, apart from eating, was outside. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was just tremendous. Um, and that's also where I started my first business. I, I got some chicken, which was actually the first farm animals we got. So the great thing with chicken is you can buy 30 eggs or so, and then you just need a heat lamp. And mm. then, uh, you know, later you'll end up with 20 or so chicken. And uh, you have the start of a business, right? You can start selling eggs to the neighbors, which I sold for, I think, about 20 cents an egg. And if you send, if you have 20, 20, 20 hens, that's, uh, you know, quickly a few dollars per day, and uh, which is a lot of money in the, <laughs> at the time when you're a child. Um, so... Yeah, it's interesting how I think no matter where you are in the world, whether you're in big city like Singapore or you're in the middle of nowhere, there's always opportunities to create value. So how did you, from huskies and chicken, <laughs> end up in Harvard and then in Singapore? Yeah, so it's um, interesting story. So um, I was lighting up the fireplace. So in Norway, it's very cold in, in the winter, obviously, and... Uh, um, you know, normally, or at least at the time, you were heating the houses with with a few fireplaces. And I was lighting up the fireplace, and uh, there was this article in the newspaper. To light the fire, you typically use newspaper paper uh, to get the fire going. And uh, there was this article in the newspaper I w- was about to lit on fire about United World Colleges. So the Norwegian Queen had been, I think, with Nelson Mandela uh, to visit the... Uh, United World College of the Atlantic in Wales, which is at some castle at the Bristol Channel. And I read about this article and this school, and I just got you know incredibly excited because people from all across the globe, it was high school in the castle. My local school was a little bit different. <laughs> uh, so I thought, like, yeah, I really want to go there. And uh, went back to my school literally the week after and asked my teachers how did I get there. I was only 12 years at the time, and they were, you know, 
you can't uh, you can't go there until you're in high school because it's not like the United World College here in Singapore, which has every single year. It, they only have the two last year of, of high school, basically the IB. And uh, so I said, okay, I'm gonna then prepare to get there. And uh, was lucky to get in. It was like a scholarship-based thing, so I got in there. And then I met a lot of tremendous people from all across the globe and realized very quickly that, you know, I was, you know, one out of, I think it was like a few hundred applicants in Norway and they had like 25 spots. Mm -hmm. But in China and India, there was, you know, 50,000 applicants and 25 spots. So it was a little bit harder to get in than some of the bigger countries in the world. And I realized quite quickly that there are some tremendous, tremendously smart and driven individuals across the globe. So we lived together there for two years, did my B. Then I had to go back and uh, uh, do my military service. Well, I didn't have to. It's not like in Singapore where everyone has to do it. But uh, it's conscription by law in Norway as well. Um, but at the time I was there, it was probably only 65% of men who did it. You can get out of it if you wanted to. But I, I really want to be there. We have a bit of a military background in my family. So I was there. And then after basic training, tried out for the Norwegian Navy SEALs or the Special Forces. And... Um, uh, was you know lucky to 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 get in or through some really hard work got in and uh, yes I was in the in the uh, in the Norwegian Navy SEALs and then I think the combination of my IB with uh, the military background um, was an interesting background for for Harvard and and a lot of my friends in high school actually ended up there after so they encouraged me to apply so I applied for Harvard I applied for um, medical school. In, in Norway, which is pure points-based. So I knew I could get into medical school. You never really know about Harvard, but I think that combination, uh, you know, uh, allowed me to get in there. And the great thing with the top U.S. universities, at the same time, right, you know, I'd you know, grown up in the middle of the, the countryside. Um, you know, uh, I had a small career in the military prior, so I didn't really have much money to pay for college. But if you get into the top U.S. universities, uh, there's great financial aid programs. So I, I got a scholarship there as well. And um, at Harvard at the time, it was really interesting days because it was 2003, 2007. So if you remember the, you know, the beginning of the internet tech boom, you know, we had a bunch of companies in the late 90s and you had the big dot-com uh, crash. And then around 2002, 2003, 2004, a lot of new really interesting companies emerged. And some who had kind of made it through .com, like Amazon and Google and so on. And at campus, obviously, Facebook came out. And um, it was just incredible to see what, you know, this new technology could do to the world. Because suddenly, you know, I had friends from all across the globe from the United World Colleges, and suddenly all these people were popping up on the Facebook platform, mm -hmm. which in the early days, you know, I knew everyone on that platform because it was just in school. Um, you could just see the power of technology. And that's how I ended up getting into tech, basically. It's just got excited about seeing the application of these types of of uh, of solutions. Mm. So I always feel like um, for many successful people, yourself included, there's always something that happens in their childhood or in their growing up years that sort of shapes who they are mm. and the person they've become. What is a childhood anecdote incident or sort of anything that happened to you growing up that made you who you are today? Yeah, I think there are a couple of different things, but one specific happening. So I think like one context is, um, I think my my family has always been quite interested in reading, right? So, uh, you know, my father is uh, 
you know, a bit more like on the kind of communist specter. My mother is a bit more on the spiritual specter. My grandmother used to live all across the globe and was very interested in philosophy and literature. So I was fed a lot of different types of thoughts and literature growing up. Uh, um, so I started very early, I think, thinking about, like, you know, the meaning of things. And then um, my great-grandmother passed away at this age where you kind of, you're just at that, that specter where you start realizing what life and death is all about. And then, you know, she'd, she'd always been around and then suddenly she was not there. And then you start, I at least really started thinking about, okay, so, you know, she's been there for, she was almost 100 years old and, oh. you know, she's been there for 100 years and now she's not here. What's the meaning of it all, right? And then I got very different answers from my family members. You know, my father is more, okay, you live and you die. My mother is, you live and there might be something after. And <laughs> my grandmother was quite philosophical about the whole thing. And uh, so I started thinking a lot about the meaning of life and uh, came to the rather, I think, simple solution that I think a lot of people um, who who are kind of striving to solve problems do is that at least you should do what you can to make life worth it, right? Like, you know, the, let's let's make, at least make a small difference because you were on Earth for a small period of time. And then when you start thinking about that very early, you start setting some goals and you start thinking about what you want to accomplish long term. And I truly believe that now, you know, I have children myself now and I think it's just so important that at some point of time during the ages between probably kind of 1 and 18 mm -hmm. if you can get your child to just be motivated around something inspired about something you never know what that will be right you talk about that moment you never really know I think for anyone who's listening to this you have children you know you can expose children to so many different things and they might you never know what will capture right but for me you know, going to this funeral captured. Uh, if I look at my son, I think, you know, for a long time, he was thinking about a lot of different things. And and then we went to the British Museum and uh, he suddenly um, got interested in history because if you've been, for anyone who's been to the British Museum, you have all of these fantastic kind of artifacts from all across the globe. It's a very interesting story of humanization. Mm -hmm. He got interested in history through starting to read history, he started to read biographies. Through reading biographies, he read Elon Musk's biography, oh. and then suddenly now he's super interested in tech and entrepreneurship, right? So, like, you just don't know when these moments will come, but that was my moment, I think, yeah. How old were you when your great-grandmother passed away? I was 10, 10, 10 years old, yes. Yeah. Wow. So still quite young. But yeah. did you realize, at that age, you still realize, kind of, what life and death is, yeah. yeah. And how old is your son now? <laughs> he's 19 now, actually. Oh, so 19, wow. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. So he's just, uh, <coughs> he's going into the military now. <laughs> oh, in Singapore? In uh, Norway, oh, actually, Norway. Yeah, yeah. So. And is he going to the Navy still? <laughs> Let's see, I mean, it's, uh, can't do it by choice, so he will have to, uh, he'll have to go through a selection and see, see if it works, but I think he's excited to do it. So. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go back a bit to, you know, when you said you were in Harvard yep. and it was just after the dot-com boom. Yeah. Uh, sorry, dot-com crash. Yes. Right. Um, 
So now we're in somewhat similar situation. Yeah. Uh, you know, where valuations have kind of like crashed. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Everyone's a, a bit more kind of tight-fisted with money. Yeah. And you're in the VC space. You know, yeah. how, how have you seen your, the, the companies that are under your portfolio, how are they managing, how are you advising them and what, what do you do, you know, as, as a VC right now? Yeah. Hmm. So I think um, the... People are always more excited when you're nearing the peak, right? Like, you know, if you think about 2020, 2021, a lot of money was pushed in. A lot of people who never invested in tech started investing in tech. A lot of people who, quite frankly, probably wouldn't be able to build a tech company start building a tech company. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and there's all this excitement. And then suddenly when, uh, you know, you're over this peak where obviously over the last 20 years we had multiple peaks we had the dot com we had the, the financial crisis and now we're having our current situation um then um you know pe- people suddenly get less excited and if you read the news media and all that like you know uh, people are you know, quite negative to the whole kind of tech space but if you go back um in time the most interesting companies actually in the world are the ones that either was kind of forged during the peak and then somehow managed to get through it, right? So they had to make really hard choices on uh, tightening in on, on cost, on, on manpower, and thinking more about profitability than growth. And the companies just being started just after, right? Those are the best venture capital courts in history. Like if you put money into tech companies in 2002, 2003, 2004, or 2009, 2010, you would have delivered more returns on average than like any other time in almost like investment history. And uh, uh, I'm 100% convinced that the same is happening now, right? Like, you know, we're, we're hitting a bottom now, whether but the bottom is in 2022, 2023, doesn't really matter. But we know the peak was 2021. So the companies who made it through and will survive the next year, 18 months, or the companies are being started now, who will get investments in 23, 24, 25, they're gonna be the most kind of groundbreaking companies over the next uh, uh, few decades. And why is that? Well, because, you know, this is tech and innovation is not a one-off thing. Like we're, the tailwinds of innovations are bigger than ever, right? We have, suddenly we can address a total global market, right, in in very rapid speed. Like if we could get together and build an app uh, overnight and address billions of people. It took the airline industry 68 years to get 50 million customers. It took Pokemon Go 14 days, right? That's because the world is global. You have um, uh, technologies maturing faster than ever. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, AI, IoT, sensors, uh, biotech, genome technology, blockchain, all this tech used to be in, in the lab just 10, 20 years ago. There's probably dozens or so technologies that are maturing at the same time. Um, on top of that, uh, the cost of building business has gone down drastically with the cloud, with uh, lab prototyping, hardware prototyping. So just building businesses is much cheaper than it's ever been. So these tailwinds are still continuing and then what's happening in the capital markets is a little bit, you know, psychological, really. Um, so, yeah, this should be the best time ever uh, to be an entrepreneur, 
And uh, with Antler, we kind of follow that mantra, right? So we made, I think, about 200 investments last year. And then this year, we'll probably make about 350. So we're more, you know, 75, 80% growth in terms of making investments because we truly believe, like, now it's the time. It's like, you know, it's just the best time ever to build, I think. 200 and 300 companies and to make that investment in the year is a lot. Can you share with us more about your investment philosophy, what you're looking for, and how you make the decision to invest? Yes, so in Antler's investment thesis is very specific. So we back people and not companies. Um, uh, what that means is when we start working with entrepreneurs, they typically haven't incorporated their business yet. They might not even have decided what they want to build. They're just an incredible entrepreneurial talent. And we look now, we get now about um, six to 8,000 applicants per month. So that's oh. you know close to, close to 80,000 applicants a year uh, of people who want to build businesses. And then we would love to work with all of them, but uh, we work with the top 3% of them currently, so they get invited into one of our offices. And we select them based on having a clear spike, a ton of drive, and real grit, meaning they won't give up when they try to build a business. And then we provide access to co-founders. Right? So let's you say you're a great business operator. You might not know great tech co-founders. So if you're a great tech co-founder, you might not know people who know how to build a business. Um, or if you're deep in the specific industry, you might not have the generalist people in your networks. We've, we help with access to co-founders, help validate the business models. We have 700 advisors across the globe, so we can help uh, you know, iterate almost any type of business. And then we, um, we uh, end up backing the teams who have come together and build a really, really great team around solving an important problem. And we currently back the top 1% of, of, of the founders that, that apply. So it's really, uh, we try to find the best of the best who's most driven. Uh, we care less about background, more about intrinsic uh, qualities. And then uh, we fundamentally just believe that, that great people put together in amazing teams working on solving a real problem if you just back those people, you reduce the risk of building a business with probably 80 to 90%, right? There's still a risk there, like, but you know, 90, 97% of startups fail mm. and they fail completely for the wrong reasons. Like if you just ensure that you have a great team of founders working on something that makes sense, you will probably succeed 80 to 90% of the time, right? Um, it's as simple as that. And uh, that's, that's what we're focusing on. So we look to invest in people and, and not companies. Um, we have now started doing a bit of investing in directly into companies as well, um, but the core of our investment is, is, is people. So what do you look for in people? What is that X factor? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we, we look for three things. Um, spike, so something that they are better on than most other people, um, right? So, um, uh, you know, to make an example, you might have friends who walk into an elevator with 10 strangers, and when the elevator hits the bottom floor, uh, they're friends with all of them, right? Or they make strong connections with people, 
Um, so perhaps they're good at sales, good at building trust. That's a spike. And then you have other friends who you might invite them out every Friday to go and grab a drink, but instead they want to go home and um, do some coding in a specific language uh, to get rid of a bunch of friends they met at Reddit, right? So they're very deep into a specific type of coding language. But you want to identify some spike that these individuals are better at than most other people. Um, and then they can utilize that as a founder. And if you have a founder team of, with people with different spikes, it, it's just incredible. Um, so we don't look for people to be great at everything, but great at one thing. or um, And then we don't care really if they're not that good at other things. So, And you look at that. If you look at great founders, any great founder you you meet, you can kind of see they're kind of a bit quirky individuals sometimes. Mm-hmm. And especially if you spend real time with them, and you probably see that if you spend real time with me as well. But but there's a few things that are just better at than most other people. So that's one, spike. Two is drive. And drive is a combination of kind of passion, ambition, and ability to execute. It's, I think drive is very often confused with passion, but being passionate about something just doesn't move the lead at all, right? Like you probably all have very passionate, I have passionate friends who for years have been talking about like solving this problem or doing this specific thing and they never do it, right? Like, um, so let's take this podcast, for example. I also have a lot of friends who've been very passionate about launching a podcast, <laughs> but they will never ever do it but you guys decided to kind of execute on it. Um, so it needs to be a combination of passion with an ambition to actually achieve something and having the ability to execute. So that, that's what we call drive. But the passion part of it is important because building a business is so hard that unless you're a little bit passionate about what you're doing, you're just gonna typically kind of burn out and, and uh, at some point and, and not end up succeeding because you always hit the wall at some point with a business. And the third is grit and that is Probably the most overlooked, I think, part when people invest in startups. You might have like an amazing person with tremendous amount of drive, um, but then they just give up too early, right? Mm-hmm. So think about the master of not giving up and probably, I guess now, still the world's richest man, Elon Musk, right? He, he, he when he built SpaceX, he kept blowing up. Uh, PayPal almost went bankrupt mm-hmm. multiple times. Um, Tesla has gone, I think, almost bankrupt <laughs> seven times. He tried to sell it to Google and Apple in the early days. He put all his money into this stuff. He was sleeping on the couch, working 100, 120 hour weeks. Most people would have just given up, right? When none of this stuff was working, right? They couldn't sell any cars because they hadn't produced any cars yet. They couldn't send any rockets to space because it, they all kept blowing up. You know, most people just give up. So a lot, many of, many times, it's not actually the the best team that wins, but it's the team that just didn't didn't give up, mm-hmm. right? So, so you need all of those three characteristics: spike, drive, and grit. And the great thing is that none of that stuff you're born with, right? Like you you can develop a spike, uh, you can develop drive, and you can build mental resilience, right? So, I think that's what's so great about entrepreneurship is you just got to create equal opportunity. And I think that's one thing that we are doing, which is why we back like we back people with, you know, my type of background who was lucky to get into, you know, an Ivy League college and have, you know, done all this stuff. 
but we also back people who kind of grew up in a slum in Mumbai and then uh, uh, got a job early on in Flipkart, worked well up in Flipkart, and now they want to build something new. 35% of our portfolio has a female co-founder versus, mm. I think, 2.9% of global venture capital going to women. Why is that? Well, it's just because we just look for great people. We look at the intrinsics. Um, and we know that if we back great people that has the right uh, spike driving grit, they will succeed in building great companies because we can provide the networks. Right? I think historically, building a business has been much easier if you have the right networks. Um, and it still is that way. But we can provide all of those, right? Like we can make an introduction to any VC in the world. We can make an introduction to almost any company, uh, any advisor you need to help build your business. So it really comes down then to the intrinsic strength of the people, which is why I think we see much more diversity in the founders that we back. I want to thank our sponsor for this season, Leonica K Trichology. I've been to one treatment and it's one of the best pampering sessions I've had. The hair massage is divine and the products are formulated by Leonica herself, who has over two decades of experience in trichology. If you're looking for a solution to your hair problems, whether it's an oily scalp, postpartum hair loss, or dry hair, or just want to treat yourself to self-care, I highly recommend Leonica K. The boutique is at Vocal Hotel and you can check them out at leonicak.com. The link is also in the show notes. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like uh, you you really admire Elon Musk, uh, <laughs> um, and it's very interesting because right now he's obviously topmost on a lot of people's minds for his shenanigans, the stuff that he does in Twitter, <laughs> you know, firing people wholesale, etc. Do you feel like being an entrepreneur automatically, or being a successful entrepreneur with spike drive and grit, automatically makes you sort of an outlier and people don't like you? I think that, um, you know, I think that many entrepreneurs will have many people liking them and many people not liking them, right? Which is what I think spikiness tends to do, right? Like, if you're average on everything, then it's much easier to be liked, I think, by everyone. <laughs> right? By everyone, right? But I think if you're, um, if you, if you have more of a clear spike, then and there are things that you're not that good on, somebody's just not gonna like. I think also traditionally in today's world, the more successful you are, the more people will uh, you know, end up disliking you, but at the same time, the more people end up liking you. It's like, mm. I think, you know, um, it's, it's 100% uh, clear to me that the more you achieve, Yes, the more people will kind of respect what you achieve, but the more also you will just have detractors because you stand up there and you're trying to do something that hasn't been done before. Mm -hmm. And um, you're naturally going to kind of ruffle some feathers on the way. And at the same time, obviously, we have, you know, I think a media situation today where um, unfortunately kind of negative articles, negative clickbait just has more people looking at it, right? So there's also like a commercial reason to dislike uh, you know there's also a lot of research on both Twitter and Facebook that actually it's just much easier to get traction and make like negative things viral than positive things so there are all these things happening that if you just stand out there and you achieve things you will naturally have some some detractors so I think like 
people should not worry so much about that as long as you continue to kind of have a strong set of values and you're working to achieve something that you think is meaningful then yeah some people will not like it some people will, will like it but you'll have more people liking it uh, than uh, than not over time as long as you're solving real problems um, so and I think what you know I mean it's very clear that Elon Musk has many weaknesses right but he has some tremendous strengths and I think you see that in 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 most very successful entrepreneurs is over time you can really kind of uh, point out their glaring weaknesses but it's it's their strengths that make them achieve great things and then they're good at um, putting people around them that has different spikes right people they are that that are great at the things you are not great at and they leverage that um, and you know I think Elon Musk and other great um, founders have, you know, all accomplished one thing, which is building tremendous teams around them that ensure that holistically uh, they have all the spikes needed to build a great business. I have a burning <laughs> question. <laughs> you know, we, we speak about failure a few yeah. times, right? Yes, I yes, mean, yes. whether it's Elon Musk, whether it's yeah. companies that you invest yeah. in. But earlier when we asked you the fun questions, you said that your least favorite word is failure yeah which i thought for a vc and for an entrepreneur that that is quite peculiar yeah can you tell me why so i think that um you so failure is okay having failed is okay and then you learn from it and you move forward right so i would never judge anyone from having failed and i failed myself uh, in, in multiple endeavors but you can never go into a new task with the mindset being that failure is an option. So you always, like, I really think that anyone who's building something and want to achieve something, failure should be one of their most um, hated words. Because if you think you might fail, the likelihood of failing is just much higher. Right? So let me give a couple of examples. So when, um, when we were doing the selection for the Navy SEALs, uh, whether you're doing the special forces training here in, in Singapore or in Norway or in the US, there's hundreds if not thousands of people every year who want to become a special forces operator. And some of them are insanely well trained. Like you have national champions, Olympic medalists, like whatever, because it's, you know, if you're in the military, it's kind of one of the coolest things to do. So a lot of people want to do it. Now, the only thing that brings you through that type of selection uh, process is the mindset that you cannot fail because it's so hard at so many points in time, right? So you're, you're, you know, you go ten days without food. Um, you'll be woken up with tear gas. You will be, um, uh, you know, in your life multiple times during you know six six months period of selection and training. And it's only the top, you know, 2%, 1%, 2% who make it through. And it's not the ones who necessarily had, were the fittest or the smartest. It's the people who just went in there and said, hey, I'm not going to fail. Failure is not an option. No matter what, I'm going to go through this. Um, and then you might still fail because of injury and so on. But if you go in with that mindset, you, your likelihood of failing is just much lower. And it's the same in building a business, right? You, If you go in there and think, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try to, to do a podcast and then uh, you uh, think that 
you know, I might fail. When you hit the wall a couple of times, um, it's going to be much easier to give up. Or with Solora, right? Like, you know, in the early days, we let, we launched in Indonesia, and uh, you know, it cost us a lot to acquire customers, and then none of them had bank cards, so they couldn't really pay for products. They had to pay through bank transfer, and uh, we had to set up this checkout process where you'd go on the website, you'd check out some clothes, and uh, you'd uh, get a code. You had to go to your bank, pay, and then get the code and go back to the computer, enter the code, and uh, and then you checked out, right? Which literally took me that to check out online. It took you kind of three to four hours because you had to go to the bank. So we had 85% cancellation rate or so on those orders. And that's a big, you know, if you can't serve a market, if, you, if it costs you like $20 to acquire a customer and it's 85% cancellation mm-hmm. rate on those customers, you just don't have a business, right? And uh, you know, if if we thought failure was an option, we just given up, and a lot of people did, right? But we instead found a way to launch cash and delivery and other ways to do payment systems. So you gotta go in there with the mindset being failure is not an option. Um, and there's a few ways I think in which you can build that mindset. Um, you want to talk about? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think you know everyone should have their own method. Yeah. I think the one of the best ways to create that failure is not a mindset, a failure is not an option mindset, is uh, create social pressure, right? So, you know, um, when uh, we were building Antler, I told everyone what we were doing. Uh, <laughs> and I brought in my entire family, um, all of my friends, everyone I worked with in business. Um, I said, hey, you know, we're going to, build this thing, we're gonna support founders all across the globe to, to, to build great companies. Um, now we're in six continents, 25 cities, and we're supporting thousands of founders every year. And, um, um, but at the time it was just an idea, right? Uh, but I told everyone, this is what we're gonna do. In, in, in five years, we're gonna be global, we're gonna support founders everywhere. Um, and we were gonna be in, in, in many of these markets the go-to place to to uh, uh, to get uh, your first bit of funding, um, and then if you look at my Instagram, my Facebook, my LinkedIn, it's all about Antler. We're very clear about what we're trying to achieve. Uh, we have funds that you know a lot of my f- friends, uh, you know, people I worked with, my family has invested into. I invested into myself. It's pretty clear that like. I've used every single line of credit, social credit that I have to, to pull Antler off, right? And, um, you know, so that just means that it's, it's very, very hard for me to ever even consider that this will be a failure, right? Because like I'll disappoint my entire, like Network. there's nobody I don't know <laughs> that I will not disappoint. So that's one way of doing it. Um, when I was doing the military thing, I literally was different mental model, I was just thinking, okay, you should just imagine like you're in jail during the selection process. And if you're in jail, what, you can't get out, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And then I just, so you just create that kind of mental box where, so I think those are a couple of techniques. There are, um, you know, obviously meditation. Uh, there are many ways you can get there, but I think people should look inward and say, hey, you know, when I really decided to do something and failure was not an option, how did I build that mental resilience? And if you have that, the chance and likelihood of building a great business is going to be much higher. 
But you know, this is something very interesting because there are also advice that says you should know when to quit, right? So when is it time to quit and say, you know, this is just not working out? And when is it I can still find another way and failure is not an option? I think it's, there are two types of of deciding that this is not working. So I think one is the constant iterative process of a business, right? So, um, you know, I think building a business is uh, very often consists of like hundreds or thousands of failures. So you try something, it doesn't work, try something, it doesn't work, try something, it doesn't work, and then you keep iterating and then you get closer and closer to product market fit and faster growth, right? Um, so so you should you should not be afraid of failing in your business as long as it doesn't kill your business, right? <laughs> and then you use that to learn and you move forward. Um, then there's a point of time where you say, and now I'm just talking about business, but there's some point of time, you know, you're clearly kind of failing, um, and um, and that's okay. Then, you know, at some point of time, you just feel like you push it as far as you could. Uh, you can't push it any further. Uh, it's actually better for uh, you know investors, employees, yourself to pursue something else because otherwise you'll just be wasting people's time and money. Um, and uh, that will probably happen to most people at some point of time when they're trying to build something because most people are actually not successful the very first time around. But unless you really, really tried, you might actually be one of those people who, uh, you know, didn't end up building Airbnb mm. or Grab or Slora or SpaceX, whatever company it is. Because if you think about when those companies were built, um, there were so many different competitors trying to do the same thing and very often it was actually not necessarily the best team that won but the one who just decided not to give up and they all went through near-death experiences. I think if you ask any entrepreneur about their business they will yeah. say, hey, I've been close to near near-death experience. So none of the world's best companies I think would have been there if you just push, didn't push it all the way to the line. What are some of your near-death experiences? And what do you, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, meeting you, there's a lot of successes, right? Whether it's getting into Navy, getting into Harvard, you know, Zalora, and then Antelope. Yeah. But what do you consider as your greatest failure personally? Yes, yeah, so um, I think the greatest failure, I think the greatest failure for um, most entrepreneurs I talked to, including myself, but they'll come with different examples, is not starting harder earlier, right? So I think like a lot of people, they start doing some entrepreneurship part-time while they're having another job. They don't really want to jump. They don't want to take the risk. Um, you know, I did that when I was in college. I started a couple of companies but didn't really, I wasn't con even considering dropping out, right? I just thought it was interesting to see if I could build this on the side of being a student. And I did the same when I was working later. But great companies are unfortunately not built part-time, right? You need to kind of... So I think one thing is just starting earlier. Uh, I would have loved to just kind of start building something when I was in, in college and then doing that full-time instead of kind of going to work after. Though I did learn a lot by working in McKinsey after. 
So that's kind of one. More specific example is uh, when Facebook was uh, taking off uh, social media, especially around kind of universities in the US, was taking off across a lot of different platforms. Um, so it's pretty clear that this is going to be a big thing. And then uh, me and some friends set up this thing called Clicker, mm. which you probably haven't heard about, but it, for a short period of time, it was the biggest student social network in Norway. Mm. And it was growing like crazy. But we, instead of kind of moving back to Europe, dropping out of college, were kind of doing this thing part-time. Um, Zuckerberg moved to the Valley, got some serious A players on board to back him, uh, brought in a bunch of other Harvard students. And obviously now they have, um, you know, three billion, or is it three and a half billion active users on their platform. And uh, we sold Clicker for $150,000. So it's like, you know, that's that's a massive failure, I'd say. (laughs) I want to ask about your leadership style because we mentioned that earlier. So what kind of leader are you? How have you changed? And how do you become a better leader? I think it's... It's become, um, I, th- I think my leadership style a few years back um, was, I was focused more on how I can become a better leader. Mm. Um, and now I'm more focused on how can I gather, uh, you know, tremendous people around me that will make me a better leader. Because I think ultimately the the people you learn the most from are the people that you spend um, you know hundreds of hours thousands of hours working with um, through that you will really pick up kind of amazing traits from amazing people that you don't have before um, so it's quite interesting how I think you can always have kind of people in your board and mentors and so on that will add nuggets of of insight and help and can ask the right questions to make you become a better leader but what I've learned ton from is you can actually just learn much more as a leader from from the people that you hire and that are you working with every day uh, and by thinking that way around it um, you know that becomes the the unit of advice and the unit of um, of leadership development um, so, you know, I guess gone much more from, uh, you know, top down to bottom up in terms of developing as a leader is probably like the biggest development over the last 10 years. Hmm. I wanted to put you on the spot a bit. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned 10 year plan just now. Yes. If I, if I ask you right now and I point a gun to your head and I said, make a prediction, 10 years, what will happen 10 years from now in the world? What do you think will development in the world will it be cryptocurrency will take over <laughs> will nuclear war happen uh, whatever NFTs right so if I ask you right now if with absolute certainty if I ask you put a, put a bet what will be your bet 10 years later what will happen to the world I think in 10 years um, we will be much further ahead having solved the climate change, uh, climate, uh, change crisis I think that um there will be multiple technologies, particularly I think carbon capture is going to be um, a humongous industry where we develop really great technologies 
uh, to ensure that that happens. So, so that's going to be one big area that I think will be, um, you know, far on the way to, to solving. I think geopolitically, um, uh, tensions will be lower than they are now. Mm. Uh, I think we live in a world where, um, you know, guaranteed mutual destruction uh, leads to people becoming more rational over time. And, uh, uh, you know, some of the increased tensions we've seen in the last couple of years um, is going to dissipate. People are going to work better together, which is going to create, you know, continue to create big global opportunities for people who want to solve new problems. Um, if you think about Web3, I think it would probably be, um, uh, you know, much, much bigger than it is today, uh, but still probably kind of low single digits. But if you think about low single digits of the global economy, that's still humongous versus where it is today. Um, I think the technology has tremendous potential and it's going through these waves and there will be another wave and there will probably be multiple more waves until it's kind of stabilized. But there are some really, really smart people who entered that industry lately, building really great tech. And the infrastructure is coming in place. I think that um, we will be closer to figuring out some uh, of the larger problems within health. Um, so there are a number, I think, really interesting developments there right now. One side of it is kind of hardcore health technology. Um, Right, biotechnology, genome technology, mRNA vaccines, for example, that just came out now, uh, will just kind of solve very specific problems. But then you have the development of AI just becoming so incredible that when you apply that to all this unstructured health data that you have, um, we'll start solving problems, uh, which hopefully will bring down healthcare cost. Um, uh, and importantly, you know, bringing down healthcare costs, which is important, I think, for, for the developing part of the world. And for the developed part of the world, I think one of the biggest things that the healthcare space is going to look at um, going forward, and I think Singapore is in the lead there, actually, where it's the first country in the world who's looked at aging as a disease. Mm -hmm. so it's the only country in the world who's identified aging as a disease. That's going to happen everywhere. And um, hopefully... Right now, you see something like 85% of global healthcare spend being spent on uh, treating. I think that's going to shift gradually where more and more of that money is going to be spent on preventative healthcare. Because if you think about most things that you're treating, it, you could actually avoid that by early detection or simple changes in lifestyle. And we'll figure out all this stuff with a combination of new technologies and, and AI. So I'm quite positive to the development of the world and um, yeah I think but it all comes down to great people choosing to pursue those problems right which is none of this stuff is going to happen unless great people decide to make progress inevitable which brings me back to kind of what we're trying to do with Antler do, do you feel like uh, we might not have enough people because since we're Elon Musk I, I love it that you, you love Elon Musk right but because Elon Musk I, I very strongly vividly remember that one of his core goals is to populate the earth, right? <laughs> but we're now reaching a, a kind of the apex of the population growth. Uh, is that <laughs> something that concerns you as well like, when it comes to solving all these problems? I think it's a real concern that um, society is starting to be set up in a way in multiple places across the globe where people choose not to have children. Yeah. Um, I think that 
you know, for the people who, who've had children, and and there are obviously some people who can't, which is you know obviously sad. But but you know, I think if you can, um, you should just do so because it's a tremendous joy and it's just great. Um, and I think it's 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 important to ensure that we don't become uh, a population of just really old people. So I definitely support that. I think it's a problem in most of the developed world, including here in Singapore. Uh, so yeah, we just encourage everyone to to have children if you can. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then, um, uh, I love this. There was this National Day video here in Singapore where it was tremendous. Uh, not sure if if you have notes, <laughs> you should put it in in the notes of the podcast. Yeah. It's this where they, they really encourage the entire Singapore population to have more children. Yeah. It's like some pop song here. Um, pop song. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> during one uh, national day celebration. There was this advertisement coming out with a music video, which says that after your uh, national day, you should do your national duty. Oh my god, are you talking about the Mentos National Night? Yes, song? Is, yeah. <laughs> I know this. Oh yeah, god. it's tremendous. It's really good. <laughs> So, I mean, Singapore is taking it seriously. We want to start to increase the population rate. So, I think that's important. I think also the countries that have a younger population over the next few years is going to have a tremendous advantage if they solve their poverty problems. Mm. Um, but, so for example, in India, it's just, you know, if they do the right things as a government over the next few years, it's just tremendous, right? So many young people that are very ambitious want to solve important problems. Um, now, I'm a little bit concerned about some developments there in terms of uh, you know, equality mm. and ensuring that, you know, the s- democracy gets stronger and stronger. Um, but if they do with, and you know, improving uh, access to healthcare, improving education, you know, think about how such a country will do versus, uh, you know, a population of, which is mostly kind of concentrated around 60, 70, 80 years old, right? It's going to do better. So it's like, mm. I think it's important for the world. I think it's important for countries. Uh, and I think it's a great thing personally. So, yeah, encourage everyone to have children. And then you should watch this video. <laughs> it's funny, it's funny. I need to Google this video. I'll show it to you later. <laughs> it's hilarious. Maybe final question from me is, uh, what are the lessons that you have learned from your journey on this planet? Uh perhaps you could sum it up in a couple of sentences okay uh, yeah it's hard but so a ton of lessons is lessons uh, I'll, I'll 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 give you three sentences one front load like whenever you try to achieve something great the time you spend in the early days of trying to achieve that is much important than later because later you will have people around you will build the team and your time become less important but in the beginning, it's only you. So you'd spend more time early. Exchange time today for time tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, one. Two, uh, learn how to hustle. Like, think, things doesn't come for free ever. Um, people don't want to work for you. Uh, people don't want to be your customer. People don't necessarily want to give you money. You have to earn it. And uh, I had to learn that skill set. Uh, I think a lot of people... I think there in Northern Singapore, there are some similar traits. Like you don't want to be too brash, too outgoing, mm. think that you're better than anyone else, right? You need to change that around. You need to believe in what you're doing and convince people to come with you on that journey. So learn to hustle. And then uh, 
Third is what I spoke about earlier is go in. Failure is okay when you learn from that failure, but you got to go in there with, with the mindset that failure is not an option in whatever you're trying to achieve. So we have a closing tradition on this yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, you see the piece of paper in front of you. Yes, it is a question written by a previous guest that we haven't seen. Okay. So if you could open the piece of paper and read it out loud before right. answering it. Between family and work, how do you divide your time? Mm. Mm. <laughs> Great question. <laughs> so, I work a lot. Um, and uh, uh, I enjoy that. I think it's 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 always going to be me. I don't think I will retire anytime soon. Um, but I also think family is one of the most important things in the world. So I assure that every day I get to spend some time with my children when I'm here in Singapore. I try to not travel for more than a week in a row. Um, I try to ensure that the time we have together as a family is quality time. I think it's much more important with one memorable, important hour with the family than 10 hours with the family where you're watching Netflix or people are on their phones. Mm. Um, so I think that you can work incredibly hard and build uh, great relations with your family and meaningful work with your family uh, by focusing on, on quality and setting some limitations on yourself um so yeah i think that would be the best way for me to answer that question <laughs> all right thank you very much magnus for coming yeah. on this so podcast yeah, yeah. thank you yeah, yeah no problem Yay. thank you i want to thank our sponsor for this season leonica k trichology i've been to one treatment and it's one of the best pampering sessions i've had the hair massage is divine and the products are formulated by Leonica herself who has over two decades of experience in trichology. If you're looking for a solution to your hair problems, whether it's an oily scalp, postpartum hair loss or dry hair or just want to treat yourself to self-care, I highly recommend Leonica K. The boutique is at Vocal Hotel and you can check them out at leonicak.com. The link is also in the show notes.